turn out upon what line the battle is fought. If they say bimetallism is good, but that we cannot have it until other nations help us, we will try that instead of having a gold standard, because England has, we will restore bimetallism, and then let England have bimetallism, because the United States has. If they dare to come out in the open field and defend the gold standard as a good thing, we will fight them to the uttermost. Having behind us the producing masses of this nation and the world, supported by the commercial interests, the laboring interests, and the toilers everywhere, we will answer their demand for a gold standard by saying to them, You shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. Hello and welcome to the 40th episode of American History 2. And if you've stuck with us this long, first of all, thank you. And secondly, you'll be delighted to know we have a whole new series of shows lined up with excellent special guests all the way until January 2019. American History 2 is going nowhere and who knows, at this rate, we'll maybe even outlast the Trump presidency. Anyway, as with the previous 39 episodes, I am Mark McClay and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host Malcolm Craig. Hello, Malcolm. Uh, hello, Mark. That was a very Ben Elton-esque political comment there. Sorry, I'm lapsing into cultural reference points. Someone of your age will have no idea what I'm talking about. Absolutely none. <laughs> Fantastic. But no, it's great. We have a brilliant uh, brilliant lineup over the, the next year and a half, really. We had a, an open call for uh, ECRs and PhD students to, to kind of pitch their research. And we had a wonderful response to it. So an amazing range of uh, topics are going to be covered over the next year and a half and beyond. And we're going to have a great topic to talk about today as well. We're delighted to be joined all the way from Utah by uh, Dixie State University's Jeremy Young. And I think this is our first transatlantic podcast recording. So welcome, Jeremy. Well, thank you. It's, it's a real honor to be your first transatlantic guest. Yes, Jeremy, it's a pleasure to have you with us as well. Good to know the transatlantic cables are still working. Um, so do you mind telling us a wee bit about your research before we get fired into the podcast properly? Certainly. So my research uh, focuses on the role of charisma, charismatic leaders and followers and movements in late 18th and early 19th century, or excuse me, late 19th and early 20th century America. Uh, and I argue that these movements laid the groundwork for the emotional connection between leaders and followers in the United States today. Cool. And uh, your your book, which you've just had released in the final year, and you were kind enough to send us both a, a copy of The Age of Charisma, you, you look at the, the era between 1870 and 1940. And I was just wondering, I'm sure some of our listeners would probably be able to name quite a few charismatic leaders that, you know, have emerged in the United States since 1940, you know, figures like JFK, Reagan, outside politics figures like Billy Graham, things like that. So I was wondering, you know, why did you choose that this sort of 70-year span between 1870 and 1940? That's a great question. So the period between 1870 and 1940 has a distinctive speaking style that people used only in that period, not beforehand, not afterwards. Um, and that speaking style, which we'll probably talk a little bit about later, um, was re extremely emotional, and it led to 
an unprecedented amount of emotional connection between the speakers who use that style and the audience members who listened to it and responded to it. So if if you were to ask somebody in 1870 when the last time was they heard a presidential candidate speak in their hometown, uh, they would say never. Uh, presidential candidates uh, didn't go on campaign speaking tours. They weren't even supposed to interact with voters because doing so made them seem like demagogues. It seemed like they, they weren't exercising their own judgment about what it meant to be to lead the country. They were relying too much on what ordinary people thought. And by 1940, that's completely changed. If you want to run for president, if you want to be a political figure, you have to engage with the public at some level. So, and given that it's going to be the kind of the main topic of discussion uh, in the kind of the episode today, it'd be probably good for us to define, I mean, what you mean when you talk about charisma, because in the book you talk about both, you know, the charisma and magnetism of uh, public speakers, evangelists, political leaders, abolitionists, and so on, all sorts of different kinds of, kinds of people, uh, and kind of the work of pseudoscientists uh, like Anton Mesmer. Uh, how do we define these two terms, charisma and magnetism, and, and how useful do you find them in aiding our kind of understanding of American and political and civil life in the period that we're looking at? So magnetism is a term that was used at the time. It was coined, as you mentioned, by Franz Anton Mesmer, uh, and Mesmer used it to refer to this bizarre theory of magnetic fluids. He argued that people had a certain amount of magnetism inside of themselves uh, and that it could be manipulated by other people who were magnetically charged and could uh, could influence their emotions. Um, it was used in a much broader sense in the late 19th and early 20th centuries just to describe uh, a certain characteristic that people had that was that was particularly appealing to others. And in particular, it was used to describe a speaking style that uh, – certain leaders uh, had developed during that time period that was uniquely emotional. Charisma, interestingly, is an, a fairly anachronistic term. It was uh, developed, although it's used as early as St. Paul's letters in the Bible, uh, its modern usage was developed by the sociologist Max Weber, and he did use it to refer to these speakers in the United States. He, he describes Theodore Roosevelt, for instance, as charismatic, but his work on charisma was not translated into English until after his death in 1920, and it doesn't really reach American readers until around the time of the Second World War. So it's a term that isn't really used by people in the time period. The way that I use it, uh, essentially, it has three overlapping meanings. Uh, so first, charisma refers to this this uh, magnetic speaking style that people would have described as personal magnetism at the time. Second, it refers to the emotional relationship between leaders and followers during this period, a charismatic relationship. And third, charisma is a discourse of democracy. It's a way that people talk about what it means to be, uh, to have government by the people and to what level emotions and popular sentiment should play a role in government. Cool. I mean, I have to say that must be the oddest, um, like, origin story of a word I have ever heard, how, how <laughs> magnetism came to exist. Um, cool. So, I mean, one of the interesting th points I thought you, you raised uh, is that, was that char charisma was a two-way street in this period. I mean, you, you talk about the charismatic leader, but you also say, you know, he has to have followers who are drawn to his or her brand of charisma, which you, you, you sort of deem charismatic followership. 
Um, I mean, was it was there a particular type of person, be it sort of type age, race, religion, region of the United States, who who were particularly drawn to charismatic leaders? So that's a difficult question to answer, actually, because so most of the testimonials that I've read, the majority of the testimonials that I've read from charismatic followers were written by white middle class people. But then again, that's because white middle class people had more access to education. Their letters might have been more likely to be retained by the people they were writing to, uh, to the extent that they were doing oral histories or publishing memoirs, again, more likely to come from the white middle class. There is some evidence um, that someone like William Jennings Bryan had a substantial lower class following. Um, it's hard to tell, again, because of the way his letters were collected. Uh, but he may there may have been a healthy mix uh, between the middle and lower classes. Um, there certainly uh, was uh, some follow, some charismatic followership of African American speakers. Um, but for the most part, African-American speakers were followed by African-American followers uh, because of racism. Because And there was a particularly racist backlash against African-American speakers who were charismatic from white audiences. Now, the exception uh, here is Booker T. Washington, uh, who was very popular among white and African-American audiences. But, of course, that's because of the message he was providing, which was, uh, essentially that African-Americans were no longer going to advocate for equality. Um, Marcus Garvey, another charismatic figure, was much less popular, but I would say completely not popular among <laughs> white audiences. Yeah. I'd, like to, I'd like to think there was some lower, lower, class, ah, sorry, lower class following for, for William Jennings Bryan, given that his name was the great commoner. Uh, yes, know, that, and that would... the, there's, it's interesting because the... Um, Michael Kazin, in his book on Brian, uh, read through all of the letters in this collection that I looked at and said that they are um, they're primarily middle class and they are. But it, it's just hard to tell. It seems like Brian received two two hundred thousand letters in the eighteen ninety six campaign. This collection has five thousand of them, and as far as I can tell, they were selected based on what the personal secretary thought were the were the best letters, and that would tend to toward the people who were more educated, could write better. So I'm not convinced that uh, it's primarily middle class. And we'll come on to talk about, I mean, in some detail about William Jennings Bryan as a, as a critical figure in this kind of charismatic movement, and Booker T. Washington as well, slightly later in the podcast when we're thinking about you know, specific charismatic, charismatic orators and leaders. And so when, when reading, again, when I'm reading the book, I learned an immense amount about how how about elocution and gesture mattered in the way that charismatic orators they delivered their speeches, sermons, homilies, whatever. And it just sounded as if it is a completely different way of speaking from what we're used to in terms of you know public addresses and certainly in the English speaking uh, world. And so, you know, how does this all kind of tie into the notions of magnetism, charisma and so forth, the importance of elocution, gesture and all that kind of thing, and this distinct way of addressing? Perhaps the most uh, exciting find that I had when I was doing research for this book was that all, almost all of the important charismatic speakers, William Jennings Bryan, Billy Sunday, uh, Henry Ward Beecher, uh, and several others, all studied charismatic speech out of the same textbook or more accurately out of textbooks based on the same uh, based on the same work of scholarship 
James Rush's speaking style had three distinctive characteristics. The first was a uh, what we call an expanded pitch range. So the highs were high and the lows were low. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. Uh, the second was uh, what Rush called the melody of speech, a sort of sing-song poetic way of speaking. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold is perfect iambic heptameter, if you're into that sort of thing. Uh, and the final portion was something that Rush called the orotund voice. And this was where the speaker would lower their larynx uh, in the way that an opera singer does. Blah. Uh, but instead of singing, the speaker would speak. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. Gave this warm, rich, ringing tone. And the although Rush didn't include any gestures, the guy who turned this into a textbook um, added a gestural system that he that a man named Gilbert Austin developed in England. And this gestural system was very specific. Um, the it imagined a speaker inscribed within a sphere and pointing to different points on the sphere to indicate different emotions. So anger uh, would have been thrusting your hand out to the side, uh, supplication, placing it in front of you. Uh, it's- uh, first of all, Jeremy, I expect you to speak in the voice of William Jennings Bryan for the rest of the podcast. Uh, but I can finally, do it. <laughs> but finally, before we go into talking about the, the actual examples of, of charismatic leaders that you discuss in your book in a bit more depth, there, you also mentioned, quite interestingly, there's a substantial presence of anti-charisma figures who, who sort of deplore charisma or personal magnetism as they, as they thought of it and seek to fight back it, fight back against it. And, you know, while it's one thing to sort of push back on a political view, it's quite another to push back on a style of leadership. You know, what was kind of motivating these anti-charisma individuals? Um. There were a lot of people who were supportive of charisma, but many Americans thought that it was dangerous. Um, they thought, uh, for instance, that charisma could be used for unscrupulous purposes. And there was some evidence of this. Henry Ward Beecher, uh, probably the most charismatic person of the 19th century, um, was who was a minister, was famous for uh, seducing his female parishioners uh, in part through his use of charisma. Um the ma- the larger argument was that charisma was opposed to the use of reason in discourse. That charisma was fundamentally emotional and therefore it was irrational. And so rational uh, people and rational things like uh, deciding government policy should be decided without charisma. Henry Watterson, who was a newspaper editor and probably the biggest opponent of charisma in this period, uh, wrote, good government can never be, has never been the offspring of hysterical screaming. And he was talking about charisma here. He, he said, it is the child of reason and virtue, the emanation of intelligent discussion, the result of calm and patriotic deliberation, uh, which is not really true. Uh, if you look back through American history, this is not really the way that government works. There has always been an emotional component to it. But there was and still is among many people this belief that government must be truly and purely rational. Uh, and so that was the main reason for them to oppose charisma. You mean to say that people actually thought that the, you know, the pre-Civil War United States was dominated by, you know, reason in politics? Oh, absolutely. Don't you think that Andrew Jackson was a rational person? All those duels? Well, now that's a completely different podcast. Actually, it would be an interesting one. But I mean, you know, we should probably go on to talk about some of the kind of the major figures involved in this kind of like you know, the charismatic 
auditory movement for want of a better term. I know it's not a, a movement, but you know, uh, one way to d- describe it. And I mean, we've talked a few moments ago about about William Jennings Bryan, who's this gigantic figure in late 19th and early 20th century American life. And as, a, as an aside, if any of our listeners are interested, we can check out our episode on the Scopes trial for more on, on William Jennings Bryan. I think, I mean, suffice to say, I mean, he was this you know figure who bestrode politics, religion, economics, you know, in a way that, you know, the, the few individuals at this time really really managed to. I'm kind of giving a brief bio here to set all this up. But I mean, he emerged from this kind of like tumult in late 19th century politics, the clash between mainstream political discourse, if there was such a thing, and the disaffected rural communities and constitutions that we kind of lump under the heading of the populists. And as you mentioned earlier, one of his lasting contributions to US speech making was his dramatic cross of gold speech at the 1896 Democratic Convention when he was anointed as the candidate in the presidential election, which he, of course, lost to William McKinley. Where does Brian fit into your analysis of charismatic oratory? And in particular, how important is this 1896 cross of gold speech as an example of the of the charismatic style? Oh, it's extremely important. Uh, Henry Ward Beecher was probably the best charismatic orator of this period, but Brian was the second best and certainly the most important. Um, that moment where Brian, uh, and, and for any of your listeners who don't know the story, he's an unknown former congressman, 35 years old, goes to the uh, Democratic National Convention uh, at a time when it's not clear who the presidential nominee is going to be. No one thinks it's going to be him. And he gets up and he gives this speech about uh, free silver, and he he ends it with this. It's a charismatic speech. He uses all of James Rush's techniques, um, and he ends it with "You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold." And he's doing this at a time when presidential candidates aren't supposed to go to the convention. If you go to the convention, you're it's saying that you don't want to run because if you did, you you wouldn't try to influence voters in that. And Brian gives the speech, and after he's done speaking, there's just absolute silence. And then the audience gives him a standing ovation. They start cheering, and they clap for half an hour. And they carry him around on their shoulders <laughs> all the way around the convention, and then they nominate him for president. And this has never happened before in American history, that people have that kind of an in-person relationship, in-person response to that kind of a speech. And Brian doesn't just give the speech once. He travels throughout the country. He gives 500 speeches in three months traveling by train. And if you divide that up, he's giving six speeches a day. Um, and so for the most part, he's just standing on the back of his train car. Audience will come to the tracks. He'll stop. He'll speak. And this is an incredibly powerful moment in American history because never before have people had this kind of opportunity to meet and listen to and react emotionally to an aspirant for the presidency. Uh, Before this, it would have been reading his speeches in newspapers, uh, listening to a campaign run by the party, but never this kind of interaction with the leader. So it really is a moment that that tells Americans this is something new that's happening. Our society works differently now. Our democracy works differently. And I found it interesting in your in your book when you talked about Brian wasn't just using the kind of the elocution and the voice and the orotund voice, and I mean you talked about Rushy's style. He also made extensive use of of these gestural 
kind of techniques as well. And as you, know, you described this fascinating moment at the end of the speech about his gesturing, gesturing there. Could you talk about that a little bit? So at the end of the speech, he uh, he says, you shall not press down upon the brow of labor, this crown of thorns. Uh, and he puts his hands down over his forehead as though he's pressing a crown, the, the crown of thorns on his head like like Christ. And then he says, uh, you shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. And he flings his arms wide open uh, to mimic Christ on the cross. And those aren't the only gestures that he's doing in this speech. One of the remarkable things that I found is a series of photos taken of Brian giving a speech in 1908. Um, and I compared the, the postures that he uses, the way he uses his arms in those photos with the illustrations in the textbook that was based on James Rush's philosophy of the human voice. And it's they're almost identical. Uh, there, there's even one photo where he's doing the same gesture as the, the, the stick figure in the in the drawing, and his feet are positioned the same way. I mean, he clearly learned this style from this textbook, and he's using it to great effect. So, no, it's quite funny because we've just had a spate of uh, members of the Conservative Party in Britain who have been doing a certain wide-legged open stance at, uh, at conferences. So there's perhaps like there's these trends that political figures try to try to catch on. I think theirs was slightly less successful. Um, but well, uh, lest, lest we forget, <laughs> William Jennings Bryan lost. Three times. Three times he lost. <laughs> he That's not to take away from his, his charismatic style, but, you know, yeah. at least in context. Yeah, and uh, so to, to move on to someone who didn't lose, um, I I found your discussion of, of Teddy Roosevelt uh, very interesting. And once again, listeners, we'll have a podcast on that. This is just becoming one big infomercial, sorry. Um, and in my head, TR has always been a, a charismatic figure. And, you know, it's interesting that you said that Weber sort of described him in the same way. And it, and it sort of this image is sort of summed up by that famous campaign speech he gives in 1912 when he's still bleeding from a wound incurred when he was shot in the chest. And you know he gets up and says, you know, take more than that to you know fell a bull moose or whatever his exact words were. Yeah, you actually seem to argue that Roosevelt and and indeed the entire progressive movement that he came to represent in 1912 was almost scared or inept at embracing charisma. Um, I was wondering if you could say a wee bit more about that. Certainly. So one of the conclusions that I came to in the book is that Teddy Roosevelt actually wasn't very good at charisma. In fact, he wasn't a very good public speaker at all. Now, that's shocking to a lot of people. I went to a conference a few years ago and said, well, Teddy Roosevelt wasn't very good at charisma. And uh, someone in the audience stood up and said, yes, he was. <laughs> and, and, I, and I had to sort of prove it. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Um, and and. So the thing is that Teddy Roosevelt wasn't trained in the charismatic style. When he went to Harvard, he didn't think he was going to be a politician. He wanted to be a scientist. So he didn't take any classes in oratory or elocution. Uh, he did take a class in rhetoric with a professor who uh, didn't believe in charisma and told him never to use it. Um, and when he becomes a public speaker, he's he's effective. People listen to him they and they enjoy listening to him. But he... He speaks in a in an idiosyncratic way. He writes down what he's going to say paragraph by paragraph on half sheets of paper and reads it off. And the written parts are not very interesting. They're rather dull. And then he will extemporize after he's done with each paragraph. And so that's where the emotional connection comes in. He just sort of riffs on what he's saying. And so when he goes to run for his third term in 1912, the, the one election he does lose, 
Um, he really makes the mistake of thinking that uh, the way that he should use his charismatic speeches is by trying to get them printed in newspapers, which is really the exact opposite of what he needed to do. He needed to go in front of audience members and talk to them and really engage with them. And that's one of the reasons that it's not as effective in 1912 as he expects it will be. Now, one problem that TR, and I would say the progressive movement even more so, has with charisma is that they they simply don't recognize the value of charisma as a two-way street. Uh, for charisma to really be effective, the it's it's a it's a balance between a speaker presenting a certain type of approach and an audience demanding changes in that approach uh, simply by showing their interest or their lack of interest. Um, William Jennings Bryan understood this in a way that progressives didn't. He said, if you speak to the multitude and they do not respond, do not despise them, but rather examine what you have said. Mankind deserves to be trusted. And that's not really the way Theodore Roosevelt or Woodrow Wilson or other progressives felt about it. They felt that their their goal was to change and transform their listeners. Uh, but really, their goal was to satisfy a need that the listeners had identified and to meet the needs of their audience. And that was a, di- a difficult problem for the progressives. And we've kind of dwelt uh, quite a bit on uh, white male politicians and to a certain extent religious leaders like, you know, Henry Ward Beecher. But I mean, the charismatic style, which you, you, know, you talk about, isn't the exclusive preserve of these white male politicians. There was, as you talk about in the book, there's a significant number of charismatic female orators who speak on a very wide and diverse range of issues. Were female orators of this kind viewed differently from male charismatic orators who can adopted this this similar style? They certainly were. Men, in fact, were very threatened by female charismatic speakers. Uh, almost to a, I mean, you would expect some of that just because of sexism and the culture, but it's amazing how threatened they were. Um, so a couple of examples. Frances Willard, the... Uh, eventually the president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, um, was before that a a charismatic speaker. She gave temperance lectures, and the evangelist Dwight Moody hired her to give, um, to to lead sermons for women as part of his revival campaigns. And she loved doing that, uh, but then uh, Moody refused to pay her and told her that she couldn't give any temperance lectures and could only work for him. And at which point she quit. And that's the kind of thing that happened to the to these charismatic women. The fact that they were women and charismatic was very threatening to the men around them who wanted to try to control them. Um, uh, Mother Jones um, was often described as uh, to sort of make her seem less threatening was described in, in this sort of motherly terms. Um, you know, she's not really a charismatic leader. She's just these these people all love her because she's like their mother. Um, Anna Howard Shaw, a suffrage uh, orator, described an instance where she uh, went to speak, give a charismatic speech in a lecture hall and about suffrage. And somebody went outside and set fire to the lecture hall while she was inside of it. Um, so that was wonderful. Um, and probably the best example of this is uh, Mariah Woodworth Eder, who was a, uh, a Pentecostal uh, minister. Uh, Eder was arrested in the city of St. Louis for uh, criminal insanity. 
uh, on the word of two male doctors who who argued that she couldn't possibly be charismatic because she was a woman and therefore she must she must be crazy. Um, so women had to deal with these challenges and they dealt with them in a variety of ways. All of these people that I mentioned were successful in one way or another, but some of them adapted their style so that they would sound less charismatic. Some of them uh, found other ways of remaining charismatic, but but sort of fending off their opponents. But it was much more difficult to be charismatic for a woman than it was. And just as a follow-up to that, to, to what extent was charismatic oratory a part of, you You mentioned it briefly there, a part of the, the suffrage movement? It was a fairly significant part of it. In fact, um, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton ran an informal uh, elocution school for suffrage orators uh, who would come and learn how to speak publicly from them. Um, at the same time, there were uh, orators who, uh, Carrie Chapman Cat is a good example, who tried to avoid charismatic techniques because they didn't want to threaten their audiences and, and used a more of a matter-of-fact, straightforward speaking style instead. The one, the one I can't believe that you haven't mentioned because she might well be my favorite person of the 1920s is uh, Sister Amy McPherson, oh, yes. uh, who... Who her story and her disappearance story, I don't think we've got time to go into it in this podcast, but we definitely will at some time because it's one of the most hilarious stories in American history. Feel free to Google it if you're listening to this podcast. So, I mean, as well as kind of like the, the way that female charismatic auditors you know, were, were treated and the way that people responded to them. I mean, we mentioned earlier the case of, uh, briefly, Booker T. Washington. So, I mean, that leads me to think, how did African-American orators, you know, take on board the charismatic style and how were they received? I mean, you're talking, again, in the book about how the one point where a white audience uh, cheers for a black speaker because they realize it's Booker T. Washington. So, I mean, how was it taken on board by African-American orators? Uh, African-American orators had a long tradition of charismatic oratory uh, going back to William Allen in the 1850s uh, or even earlier to African-American churches that arose from the Second Great Awakening in the 1820s. The general rule was that an African-American speaker could use these charismatic techniques. In fact, I should mention uh, African-American churches are one of the few places today where you can still hear James Rush's technique used on a regular basis. Uh, by ministers and other speakers. So African-American speakers could use these techniques and and almost always did um, whenever they were uh, speaking to an African-American audience, and they could use them with a white audience as long as they weren't advocating for racial equality. If they began to advocate for racial equality, then, of course, uh, you could imagine how the white audience would react. They were hounded out of town or attacked or lynched or Yes, yeah, the same normal happy story from race relations back then. Um, so, I mean, moving towards the, the end of the of your age of charisma, uh, as you coined it, I mean, you discuss Franklin Roosevelt. And, you know, so you suggest that while his fireside chats, which he's so famous for, actually eschewed many of the old charismatic techniques, he successfully achieved the type of intimate relationship that charismatic followership engendered and, and sometimes even went beyond what 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 previous speakers had managed, uh, previous speakers had managed. So how then, sort of, in, in your eyes, did Roosevelt seal the end of of this age of charisma with his landslide victory in nineteen thirty six? 
Roosevelt did, as you say, was to integrate the charismatic leader-follower relationship effectively into his radio fireside chats. He made people feel like he was coming into their living room. So if charisma, if, if William Jennings Bryan was more personal and more emotionally available than any speaker before him, uh, Frank, Franklin Roosevelt on the radio was another quantum leap in that direction. Um, and if you read the letters uh, that people wrote to him after his very first fireside chat, the one on the banking crisis, just nine days into his presidency, they are those those people are as stunned as the people who listen to William Jennings Bryan for the first time. They are they are hearing something that is completely new. They are hearing a, a direct emotional connection with their their leader. Um, a woman named Mildred Goldstein wrote. Uh, to FDR. Until last night, to me, the president of the United States was merely a legend, a picture to look at, a newspaper item, but you are real. So what Roosevelt then has to do after sort of adapting this style, and he's what he's done is he's retained the emotional connection between leaders and followers and even enhanced that connection, but he's abandoned the actual speaking techniques. He doesn't sound like James Rush, and he certainly doesn't do the gestures over the radio. So in 1935, uh, Roosevelt is in a conflict with Huey Long, who is perhaps the last of the traditional charismatic speakers, although Long himself has updated his style for radio audiences. He's, he's sort of a multi-platform c- celebrity. Um, and it, it looks for a while as though Long is going to run for president in, in 1936, and it's going to be an old-school charisma versus new-school charisma battle. Um, but then Long is assassinated, and Roosevelt's version really is never significantly challenged again. Cool. And I mean, you mentioned that that no presidential candidate um, who ran a you know a sort of old school charismatic campaign was successful in winning office uh, throughout the seventy year span that your book covers. Now, aside from the obvious mistake you're making by overlooking Calvin Coolidge. Um, I mean, why, 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 why do you think this was the case? You know, you joke about Calvin Coolidge, but he was actually the first radio star. Um, he, Calvin Coolidge, as you know, had this, uh, this incredibly nasal, monotonous voice. It sounded like he was, you know, had a cold and was reading, off, uh, reading the newspaper when he would give a speech. And What's amazing is that it sounded great over the radio. <laughs> um, he was, you know, he, he, he spoke to audiences of 30 million people, was the first person to speak to audiences like that. Um, and he sounded measured and calm and like, like a president. And when he would debate charismatic speakers uh, or, or uh, compete with them in giving speeches on the radio, they would sound a little overwrought. It's one thing to see all of that emotion in person when the person's in there in the room with you. It's another thing to hear them be emotional on their end when you're just sitting in your living room with your family. It sounds a little strange. And so Coolidge was actually a pretty popular and effective public speaker, despite the fact that he was self-evidently bad at it. Um, so back to your question, uh, why did so many charismatic speakers lose? Why did almost all charismatic speakers lose? The reason is because if you're not if you're favored to win, you're not going to use this technique in the first place. This is uh, the province of long shots and outsiders. Uh, It's more volatile and unpredictable than traditional political techniques. Uh, If you can win with a campaign of advertised politics or a standard partisan campaign, um, you're going to do it. Uh, And if you're not comfortable with giving the kind of power to the people that charisma 
does. Remember, mankind deserves to be trusted. If you speak to the multitude and they do not respond, you have to change what you're saying. If you don't want to do that, you're not going to use charismatic techniques either. So at some level, this is a, a, a matter of confirmation bias or selection bias. The only people who, who use charisma are the people who are likely to lose anyway. And, and why in the end does the charismatic style you know, die out after the 1930s and 1940s, as you kind of you conclude your book at. I mean, is it, as, is it as simple as advances in communications technology, a changing world, or can like, you know, as you've alluded to, deeper and more, more complex reasons for it? So certainly communications technology made the style obsolete. The central argument that I'm making, though, in my book is that the emotional relationship, charisma as a relationship between leaders and followers, doesn't die out, that it's still with us today. I mean, think about politicians, uh, certainly in the United States and elsewhere. They have to shake hands and kiss babies and give speeches and make themselves emotionally available to voters. And if they don't do it, even if they're if if they don't do it because they're not very good at it, uh, what would we think of them? We would think that they are elitist and that they don't deserve to rule. They don't deserve to govern. So this idea that politicians must be emotionally available to us that we must have an emotional relationship with them, is a democratic element of our society that most Americans take for granted. Um, And it's the most lasting legacy of the age of charisma. So as a speaking style, the age of charisma is over. As a relationship, the age of charisma is still with us. I guess my final question then before we wrap this up, even though your answer there sounded like a wonderful end to an episode. Um, So, I mean, do you think the this the, the charismatic style that you describe do you think it's a uniquely american phenomenon um that, that you've uncovered um do, do you see like a rose out of conditions specific to the united states the speaking style does seem to be uniquely american because uh, james rush was an american his textbooks were only popular in the united states And he seems to have developed the style in part from his experience of the American theater, from listening to people like Edwin Forrest uh, act. Uh, And as as you know, Lawrence Levine has done a wonderful book on, among other things, the differences between American actors and British actors and their their techniques and their speaking styles in that time period. Um, There certainly are other charismatic movements going on, certainly in Europe, um, so William Gladstone is a is a significant figure in the UK. Um, and then there's this much more overwrought uh, charismatic style that you see among fascists such as Mussolini and Adolf Hitler in the 20s and 30s, of the 1920s and 30s. So there is charisma in other places, but it seems to be uh, culturally conditioned and specific, the type of charisma uh, that happens in different places seems to be specific to specific cultures and specific locations. Cool. Well, thank you so much for that, Jeremy. Um, that was that was a really sort of a really interesting topic that you know has given a sort of new dimension to how I think about that seventy-year period. Um, and I, I really appreciate your input. Yeah, I mean, likewise. I I found that I mean, reading the book and listening to you talk about it, and particularly hearing you kind of give us a sense of what this charismatic style was like. It's placed the, you know, when I talk in lectures about, you know, the political rhetoric of the, from the 1870s onwards, I'm going to talk about it in a different way now. 
having understood that it was quite a different, for many people, a different style and a different method of, of communicating with people. So I really, I mean, from a personal point of view, I really appreciate appreciate it. Well, that's very humbling <laughs> I, to think that my, my work will be taught in lectures now. <laughs> uh, but thank you very much for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. No, it's been a, been a delight, and I'll, I'll try my best to do, to, uh, to do a proper William Jennings Bryan impersonation uh, next time I'm lecturing on it. And ne- in our next episode, uh, we continue with the, the theme of oratory, uh, when we're going to have uh, Hannah Rose Murray on to talk about her research into uh, the great abolitionist orator and ex-slave Frederick Douglass, and in particular the vast number of speeches and addresses that he gave in the United Kingdom uh, during his abolitionist campaign. So that's going to be continuing the theme uh, of oratory, although stepping back uh, a couple of decades. Yes, um, and so thanks again, Jeremy. Thanks again, Malcolm. And until the next time, listener, thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.